Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Can you hear me? I sure can. Okay, yeah, you're good. I can. Yeah, you're good to go. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're good to go. Okay, great. You're in control. All right, thanks. So um, to start it, I'm Richard Davis. Um, I identify as androgyne, and um, androgyne is one of those um, non-binary genders. Um, it basically means having a sense of identity that's equally male and female. And um, growing up, I was always kind of attracted to the androgynous. It fascinated me. I was really into um, these subcultures within Japan called Visual K, which there was um, an androgynous aesthetic and just going forward, you know, um, as I came out, I, I identify as a pansexual person, meaning I have attraction to people who may be both male or female or any, any kind of gender possibility within between a person's gender doesn't really restrict my attraction to them. So talking about um, androgyne, that's a term that I specifically use because that was a term that Crowley used and I felt like, oh, that fits me. Um, but other terms for that that are very commonly used nowadays would be non-binary meaning it's not male or female, the, the fixed binary. So it's so, it can fall anywhere under that. There's also gender queer, meaning that you know your gender is not normal. Queer kind of means unusual or different, so people identify that way. There's also um, what's called gender fluid, meaning that people move between the genders fluidly. Um, they're you know, identifying and expressing themselves one way um, a certain day, and then that fluid sense of identity may shift another day. And people just don't feel restricted uh, by their, what the gender they were assigned at birth is. And I think that younger generations, there's a generational disconnect on understanding this. Um, and it's just, I think younger people have really started to move away from gender norms. They're just, these things feel socially constructed. They're expected behaviors that don't fit me. And so they reject them. Whereas I think some of the older generations are used to a traditional sense of identity that everybody is either a man or a woman. Look at what you look like. That's what you are. Um, and so that's kind of um, played out a little bit recently in the OTO and particularly in the EGC, the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica. I, um, I've been a member of the OTO for 10 years. I was initiated in Tokyo, Japan, actually, when I was an English teacher there. Um, I found the OTO and really connected really well with the, uh, the local, the lodge there and took my Minerval. 
And after that, I moved to Texas and affiliated with Scarlet Woman Lodge in Austin, Texas, and started to train as a deacon. Um, and when I took my second degree, those who are familiar with OTO, you can volunteer for service um, for what's called the Man of Earth Delegate. And so at that time, I was elected to be one of the Man of Earth Delegates who serves um, Sabazius, Sabazius being the the um, Supreme and Holy King of the United States OTO. So he's the, the head of the the U.S. Grand Lodge. And so during that year, it was 2013, there was a book that came out called Priestess, and it was spelled priest slash ESS, and it was um, analyzing the existing policies on the Gnostic Mass at that time, saying, well, there seems to be like a double standard here. You know, the policy says, if you are male, you have to be a priest. If you are female, you have to be a priestess. And um, it, it said, you know, if you so if you were transgender, it was actually very progressive for that time for transgender identities. If you were a trans man, you could you needed to be a priest. And if you were a trans woman, you needed to be a priestess. And what the book Priestess called attention to was um, this idea that people who I, uh, identified with the binary could do um, things like the sacrament of marriage. They could have a Thelemic marriage, they could invite their friends and family and have and be the officers at a Gnostic mass for it. And this was around the time there was a lot of discussion around marriage equality happening in the US. Marriage equality hadn't happened yet. And I was the man of earth delegate. And um, a lot of the LGBTQ members of OTO were saying, hey, this book came out, we're hearing about it, there's a lot of discussion. Can you represent our points of view to Sabazius? And you know, I did. And um, there was some um, I, I think Sabazius genuinely was hearing me out, but there was still some confusion on how I was trying to explain what we meant by non-binary and gender fluidity. And he said, well, this is just an example. And I, and I think he actually, uh, having talked to him years since then, like understands completely now what, what we meant by it. But at the time he said, well, it's not a Gnostic mass if there are two priests. And I was like, no, I'm not saying two priests. I'm saying somebody you know can be a, a priest and a priestess and they embody the male and female principles any human being can do that and i would try and back up what i was saying with things crowley had written and crowley um and i'll show you some quotes coming up that he literally said don't see yourself as a man or a woman that you know sets a bar to your emotion and you need you know to see yourself as dynamic and fluid and there was also this kind of idea that crowley himself identified as male he was a man who identified as male yeah, he took the name Baphomet, and in, you know, magic and theory and practice, he says, you know, this emblem, the devil card, 15XV, is um, the emblem of Baphomet, who he described as the androgyne, who is the hieroglyph of arcane perfection. So this term androgyne comes up, and if you look at Baphomet, I've even, I got him on my shirt today, um, he has breasts and a phallus, and he's a combination of a goat and a human, and he's this, um, you know, symbol, this emblem of the androgyne. And so for me, I'm looking at this ritual and it's curiously numbered lever 15. The Gnostic Mass is numbered 15. Um, and the opening of the Gnostic Mass, it says, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I proclaim the law of light, life, love, and liberty in the name of e On the section in magic, it's under the the chapter on black magic, there's um, a footnote on the devil. And he says first that the devil does not exist because the devil is this perception of duality. He says a devil who had unity, gnosis or, you know, union would be a god. And he says that, you know, the devil is historically the god of someone that people personally dislike. 
But he says, he goes on to say, um, you know, Baphomet, though, is this symbol uh, of arcane perfection. And because the Hebrew letter associated with it is ayin, which means I. And he said the I represents light. And then he said the next part is that um, the number of the card, if you add yod and hey, those two, it's 10 and 5, total 15. And he said, therefore, they are life and love. And you have to know the symbolism, the shape of the Hebrew letter is yod is a little dot, hadith. And hey is an arched character, nuit. So hadith is life, as he says in the Book of the Law, and nuit is love. So we have those things in the opening of the Gnostic Mass, life, light, love, and liberty. So the last part he says is Baphomet is the goat, Capricorn, and the attribute of the goat who climbs to the summits of the earth is liberty. So those four things are embodying in the devil. So that kind of, he never says that Lever 15 was named after the devil card. But if you read his description of Baphomet, it hits on all four of the principles of the Gnostic Catholic Church. Um, and he himself took the name Baphomet. So I'm going to share my screen just to kind of open up with why I think uh, Crowley identified himself as androgyne. He, he says that in his uh, confessions on chapter two toward the beginning, he wants to lay out who he is, that he is both in one. And moving forward from that, he also said... Um, in the introduction to the book of the law that he wrote. So it's not part of the book of the law, but the introduction says in the, the section on the new eon, he says, notice the, you know, the, uh, the instinct of the reproductive nature to be changing toward becoming bisexual and epicene. So Crowley was bisexual. And so he meant, you know, assuming the binary, this means people are open to sexuality across the, the genders. And epicene is a term that means similar, like, similarly androgynous, both male and female. And so he, he was foreseeing in his, you know, sense of the new eon that these were things that were coming. These are ways that, you know, humanity is going to change and evolve to clash with the eon of Osiris, which if you look at what he called the eon of Osiris, it's the patriarchal age. And under the patriarchal, patriarchal age, there was a lot of male dominance. Um, you know, and if you look at history, men were typically the ones leading, you know, um, uh, institutions like religious structures, power structures, that kind of thing. And um, women during that time period were not as, it, they were unequal. And if you look at the manifesto of the EGC, it lays out a thesis. And this thesis has three parts. And Crowley says, this is the formula of the Eon of Horus. He says, the Eon of Isis and Osiris are of the past. These are the three things that the Gnostic Mass communicates. He says, the sexes are equal and complementary. Every man and every woman is a star. The priestess must now function as well as the priest. So there is a role about the priest and priestess and what they communicate through this Liber 15 ritual. So I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. And I want to go to um, the confessions example. Share, yeah, share your entire screen, share. I don't think I can share my screen. Oh, there we go. I see what it is. I've selected. Okay, so I'm going to move to this description about how Crowley describes himself in Chapter Two of Confessions. It's probable the probable that these peculiarities are connected with certain curious anatomical facts. 
While his masculinity is above the normal, both physiologically and wit as witnessed by his powerful growth of beard, he has certain well-marked feminine characteristics. Not only are his limbs as slight and graceful as a girl's, but his breasts are developed to quite abnormal degree. There is thus a sort of hermaphroditism uh, in his physical structure. And this is naturally expressed in his mind. But whereas in most similar cases, the feminine qualities appear at the expense of manhood, in him they are added to a perfectly normal masculine type. The principal effect has been to enable him to understand the psychology of women, to look at any theory with comprehensive and impartial eyes, and to endow him with maternal instincts on, on spiritual planes. He has been able to philosophize about nature from the standpoint of a complete human being. Certain phenomena will always be unintelligible to men as such, others to women as such. He, by being both at once, this is where he says, things are unintelligible to men that are not intelligible to women, but he, Crowley, Baphomet, by being both at once, has been able to formulate a view of existence which combines the positive and the negative, the active and the passive in a single identical equation. I wanna to pause to talk about the Gnostic mass. When we're looking at the Gnostic mass, the priest and the priestess are human emblems of other universal principles that are divided for love's sake. Crowley talks about being able to have a view of existence where he combines the positive and negative, the active and passive, and therefore the masculine and feminine by being both man and woman. Finally, intensely as the savage male passion to create has inflamed him, it has been modified by the gentleness and conservatism of womanhood. Again and again, in the course of this history, we shall find his actions determined by this dual structure. Similar types have no doubt existed previously, but none such has been studied. The present investigation should be of extraordinary ethical value, for it must be a rare circumstance that a subject with such abnormal qualities so clearly marked should have trained himself to intimate self-analysis and kept an almost daily record of his life and work extending over in nearly a quarter of a century. So I want to come back to, um, let me see, is my, I think I'm sharing screen. I'm not sure if you can see me on cam again. Is anyone that's there able to confirm if you can see me on camera? Cannot. It just says Richard Davis. Okay, let me go back to sharing my screen then. So, um, okay. Can you still see the screen now? Yes. Okay, we'll just leave the screen then since my camera might be off. Um, when I was working on the advocacy in 2013 um, to, to talk about the idea of changing the policies on the Gnostic Mass, there was a lot of pushback. People said, you know, the formula of the Gnostic mass is heterosexual. It's a man and a woman. You know, you cannot do that. And I, I never said that um, we should change the, the essence of the roles. My point was that human beings in the new eon um, can be either role. And, you know, the manifesto of EGC kind of lays that out. But at the end of it, you know, there was a lot of pushback. People said you know, there was a lot of theories that, like, you have to have certain body parts, you have to be certain ages, you have to be fertile. And so it, it all kind of clashed because it's like, okay, well, we're allowing transgender clergy to serve in the role that matches their gender identity. So, you know, the appeals to the body parts and things like that don't line up. We don't tell someone because of age and fertility that they cannot be clergy in the mass. 
Um, and the other piece that the LGBT community found difficult was that you could still do officially recognized Gnostic masses in private, but you could not have the public at them. So, but they were still there. So we're saying, well, we can do these masses behind closed doors and they're official. They're, there's no one saying there's a problem with the formula. Why can't we do it publicly? And as I mentioned at the sacrament of marriage, you, you have a public celebration, but for people who were gay or lesbian or queer and things like that, they don't have the same equal access to that. They can't invite friends who aren't initiates to a marriage ceremony um, because they're only allowed to do that, that they serve in the mass in because they're only allowed to do that privately. And so this, you know, it's, things just weren't adding up and people felt that it was um, a double standard and, and there wasn't a clear rationale as to why things had to be that way. And so after I finished my service um, as a man of birth delegate in 2013, I was kind of honestly like frustrated and felt um, that it was it was just a hard thing to endure people. I mean, a lot of people had a lot of mean things to say uh, about me at the time for trying to make the case for for changing the policies on the mass to allow for gender fluidity to be both recognized and accepted and affirming of people who identify that way. And I came back to the OTO uh, in 2017. I was living in D.C. Um, work, and I still live in the D.C. area. That's where I work. And uh, I, I started uh, becoming active at William Blake Lodge. And so while I was there, I, I um, started training under a, a bishop, a new bishop. And after I was ordained as a deacon, you have to make a choice at that time. You had to choose, will you, well, men are supposed to be priests and women are supposed to be priestesses, but they knew there was this gray area of people who don't identify exclusively as either. And at the time, bishops were told the policy is pick one and stick with it. And I explained to my bishop, I said, look, I'm, I do identify as androgyne. And part of what drew me to Philema is the way Crowley wrote about this is that people like me have a place in this point in time, this is we're moving forward and moving away from things that are antiquated. And I could back up what I was saying with writings and examples. And so my bishop checked and I was given permission to be a novice priestess. And um, I also know that there were other people who were assigned female at birth that were non-binary gender queer people um, that were training as priests. They didn't identify as trans men but they wanted, they felt they resonated more with the priest role, just as I felt I resonated more with the priestess role. And for over two years, I was allowed to do that. But um, something changed in 2019. Um, Hymenaeus Beta, the outer head of the order, had approved Sabazius's proposal, which I think was a great proposal, to make the deacon office equal to the priest and priestess, and they call it the deacon sacerdote. Um, and I had a feeling, I was like, well, you know, because that office is not gendered. Men and women can do the deacon and there's no question about it. And I had a feeling this is going to have an impact. I have a feeling this is going to hit people that are gender fluid and not and queer and non-binary. And sure enough, um, right after it was announced at Notocon last year, within a few weeks, a new policy, policy clarification came out saying, uh, if you're not a cisgender or transgender man, you can't be a priestess and if, or you can't be a priest. And if you're not a cisgender or transgender woman, you can't be a priestess. So you had to match the gender and anybody who is not that you are a deacon sacerdote now. That's, that's what you can be. So my bishop contacted me and said, Hey, I have bad news. I can no longer allow you to be a priestess. This policy thing happened now that the deacon sacerdote office exists. This is what you've got to do. And I was just like, this is, hard because for two and a half years, I've been working on this and this is not my will. 
And I said, I understand though, you know, I'm powerless to change the policy. And it honestly threw me into a year-long depression. Um, I had bipolar disorder and I had a major depressive episode from September on through like July of this year that I'm just now recovering from because it was hard. This is my spirituality and it really took a blow to my sense of identity and who I was in, in my community, to my church, to my order, you know? Um, but I've, I think I've started to process that and move forward with it. So this was, so there's this underlying theory that the Gnostic mass is written from a male perspective and is about men because Crowley was a man. And um, let me see if I can find it. So this is from 1996. There was an OTO women's conference, and this is quoted from the magical link from the fall 1997 issue. And it talks about um, the patriarch, Hymenaeus Beta, what he had to say about it. And so I did find it funny that a patriarch was invited as the keynote speaker at a women's conference. But, um, you know, so it is what it is. But it says um, in his address to the women's conference in 1996, the patriarch H.B. described the Gnostic saints as celebration of the sexual polarities and their cosmic and natural interplay from a male perspective, having been written by a man. Then he says, with regard to the list of saints, he said, it is a list of the small handful of men and man gods and the opinion of the author of the mass understood uh, the divinity of woman. Someday, perhaps not soon, but who knows, a woman adept of the sovereign sanctuary will manifest the genius to compose a mass in which the female takes the more active role and the male the more passive, as with Shiva and Shakti in Hinduism, in which the deacon speaking for the priestess can claim communion with the women in history that have perceived the divinity of man. My issue with that, and I was told when I was bringing these up, people said, well, the mass is heterosexual, Richard. Why don't you make a homosexual mass? Why don't you write something different? And I said, this mass is numbered Libra 15. It's numbered after an androgyne. It hits the light, life, love, and liberty of Baphomet, the way that Crowley described it. This mass is universal. We are called a Gnostic Catholic church, Catholic meaning universal. This mass is for everyone. The law is for all. Why should we make a women's mass? Why do we have to make a gay mass? You know. I just, I wasn't buying it that this formula didn't have any flexibility built in when it's numbered after an androgyne. And I thought, you know, this is the assumption is that it's a male-centric mass. It was written by a man, but I just read you Crowley's description in his biography. He specifically said, I'm both. And this ritual was written by someone who understood both and had a complete view of the universe. Wouldn't that be reflected in his mass, the central ritual of the OTO, the thing that's performed by the church? And so I refused to give up my theory on this. I said, you know, let's continue to dig. So I found a lot of um, examples, which I'll go through on what Crowley had to say. I'm going to skip that part. I did mention, I wanted to mention too, in Liber 415, the Paris working um, the number 415, if you go into uh, looking up at the gematria for it, one of the words is hakadosh, which means both the holy one and sodomite. And during the Paris working, um, Crowley and Victor Newberg were doing things where it says, uh, you know, here, after the priest performs the supreme sacrifice and enters the holy of holies, and the two who have become one sing in a high voice without intermission the words of the holy vesicle, the blessing of the blessed follows, and it says, with the dew of the mass, let the wife say these words. For of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is the norm, male, female, quintessential, one, 
man being veiled in woman form. So this is the anthem from the Gnostic Mass, and Crowley wrote the Mass around this time. But like he said, he had these roles for him and Victor where they're calling each other the, the maiden and the wife. And, you know, so obviously they were seeing each other through a lens of they could hold different polarities. And in Sexual Magic by Pascal Beverly Randolph, who is said to be the one that influenced the sex magic of the OTO, in his little stick figures, he has this um, explanation of the negative and polar ones. It looks like they're honestly doing doggy style. But he says, these schematic drawings reproduced here assume that the active operator is the man, but it can also be otherwise. For it is not said that the woman has not the power to assume the initiative in magical operations. If it is the woman that directs the operation, one transposes our drawing according to the law of natural analogies. So this is also affirming because if Pascal Beverly Randolph was writing that and saying that he literally says the man and woman can exchange the active and passive roles, it makes sense that Crowley could see things that way too, and therefore he and Victor can hold those same kinds of roles in sex magic. That's the, the workings they were doing in the Paris working. So interestingly, like I said, he numbered it 415, which has a dual meaning of the holy one, and it has a the same word has a reading that it, um, implies sodomite. And I just, you know, those are things that like kind of caught my attention. I think that when you're an LGBTQ person, these things sort of stand out to you a little more. So this is that quote I mentioned in the about the new eon in the intro to the book of the law. It says, Horace rules the present period of 2000 years beginning in 1904. Everywhere his government is taking root. Observe for yourself the decay of the sense of sin. That was a very old eon thing, right? The eon of Osiris Christianity, the sense of sin is decaying. The growth of innocence and irresponsibility, it's childlike, innocent and irresponsible, and the strange modifications of the reproductive instinct with a tendency to become bisexual or epicene. And as I said, epicene means both male and female. Um, in the anthem of the Gnostic Mass, by the way, I wanted to point out, notice there's a hyphen. It's not a comma, male, comma, female, quintessential one. It's male, female, quintessential one. There's a, there's a hyphen here too, man being veiled in woman form. And if you read Crowley's commentary on the book of the law, he says, everyone has a Hadith center. We assume Hadith is the man being the, the, uh, that's in the center of every person. And they have a woman form, meaning matter. So Hadith is motion, Nuit is matter. So your body is made of matter. You're made of woman form. And that was my other thought. If I'm going to be a priestess, I'm a man being veiled in woman form. Everybody, every man, woman is a star. And every star is not a man or a woman. It's a, an equalizing statement. So I'm like, I can be a priestess because I, I have a man being within, Hadith, and my body, even though I may have a beard, body hair, facial hair, whatever, it's still woman form. It's made of matter. I can bring myself to that office and be that, you know, embody that principle. Um, so just jumping down, he you know, says that this is part of the new eon, that people are going to evolve this way. And this is the manifesto of the EGC that was approved by Crowley in 1944. So toward the end of his life, this is the manifesto. This is what the EGC is supposed to do. The world has entered the new eon, the age of the crowned and conquering child. The predominance of the mother, the eon of Isis, and of the father, the eon of Osiris, are of the past. Many people have not completely fulfilled these formula, and they are still valid in their limited spheres. 
But the masters have decided that the time has come for the administration of the sacraments of the Eon of Horus to those capable of comprehension. And this is the three-part thesis. The sexes are equal and complementary. Every man and every woman is a star. The priestess must now function as well as the priest. And you can read that line a few different ways. The priestess must now function as well, like as good as the priest. The priestess must now function as well as the priest, like in addition to the priest. But another way to read this is the priestess must fun now function as well as being also the priest. The priestess must now function also as the priest, as well as the priest. So it's this ambiguous statement. You can read it like a few different ways. And the way I read it was, I think it's meant to be read that, that way because the other statements that come before it are lining out the equality of the, the sexes and that every man and every woman is a star and stars aren't gendered. You know, they're, they're a perfect, you know, uh, perfect entity on their own and they're a reflection of who we are as, as Thelemites and human beings, you know? Um, so he says... At the end, the expression of the above thesis in public ritual has begun with the establishment of the Gnostic mass, which while adhering to the vital elements of the most ancient and true tradition fixes its attention on and aims most firmly in the future. So that's, you know, people say the Gnostic mass, it can't be done another way because you need a man and a woman to do the secret of the ninth degree. It's about bodily fluids. And that's, yeah, I'm not going to say, I don't know, I'm not a ninth degree, but when I read the manifesto of the church, it doesn't mention that as being important. It says the expression of this thesis is what needs to happen and be communicated to the public. So going down in Liber Abba, the formula of Iao, the formula of Iao for the, every eon has its own Iao formula. And the one for the eon of Horus adds up to 93 with its Hebrew letters. But the eon of Isis, he, he describes as the matriarchal age where it was understood as one sex. That was the, the eon of the strength of nature. And human beings saw one sex and people um, come to life and return to the earth. And there's just this na nature to it. With the eon of Osiris, we entered into the patriarchal age, the worship of man and the idea of suffering kind of epitomized by the Christ figure dying on the cross and resurrecting and following that model. And during the patriarchal age, there were the understanding of two binary sexes. And these sexes were opposed. They were imbalanced. It was, it was considered the man is the dominant and the woman is not. And there's, you know, the fables and things like, you know, Adam and Eve, the man, the man is superior because the woman was made of the rib and she's the reason for the fall of man and that kind of thing. But that was the tone for that eon. I was also directed um, to one of the writings of Crowley called um, Across the Gulf. And it's the story of Ankaf Nakonsu. He gives like an account of his past life. And in the beginning of it, he says at the time he was born, um, as he was growing up as a child, his father brought him to an oracle in a well. So this, this, this magi that lives in the well. And he said, you know, I present before you uh, this child, you know, and he's supposed to, you know, the oracle's supposed to give him some divination on it. And he says, let this child be the priestess of the veiled one. And so the father goes, well, this is, that doesn't make sense. He's like, you know, this is a boy. So he goes like, I present to you my son. And the oracle said the same thing. He said, let this child be the priestess of the veiled one. And so they, they realized like, okay, I guess this has to happen. And so Ankaf Nakonsu in this part of his life was um, raised to become a priestess. And he was made a priestess of the veiled one. 
And I, I'm running out of time, so I want to get to what happened. So within his lifetime, that was supposed to be the 26th dynasty, the turning point where the Eon of Isis ended and the Eon of Osiris started. And so long story short, um, the Veiled One died uh, after Crowley's um, like Gnostic ecstatic union with her. And when he went to resurrect her, um, Osiris came forward instead. And then Crowley was made a priest of Osiris. And I bring this up because within the narrative, once he became the priest of Osiris, he abolished the office of priestess. And he had only one high priestess, and he said, I made her veiled in my servant. So it's like he completely abolished it. And if you think about the Eon of Osiris, the age of patriarchy, women haven't been allowed to be priests, for example. They're not welcome into the priesthood. So this Eon of Horus and that EGC manifesto balances things. It, it restores the office of priestess, and it is equal to the office of priest, and human beings can move fluid through fluidly through that if they are, in fact, this idea of androgyne that Crowley foresaw that people would come to understand themselves as. So I want to read um, just a few quick things. This is uh, from verse 44 of Lieber 65, and he says, verse 44, this constitutes a profound riddle of holiness. Those only understand it who combine in themselves the extremes of moral idea, identifying them through transcendental overcoming of the antinomy. They must have gone further yet, beyond the fundamental opposition of the sexes. The male must have completed himself and become androgyne, the female and become gynander. So those are just reversals of the male and female um, prefixes, the androgyne and gynander. In this, this incompleteness imprisons the soul to think I am not woman but man or vice versa is to limit oneself, to set a bar to one's motion. It is the root of the shutting up which culminates in becoming Marian Violet or a black brother. Then he also goes on very early on chapter one of part three, magic and theory and practice, the principles of ritual. He says there is a single main definition of the object of all magical ritual it is the uniting of the microcosm with the macrocosm. The supreme and complete ritual is therefore to the invocation of the holy guardian angel, or in the language of mysticism, union with God. In all other magical rituals are particular cases of this general principle, and the only excuse for doing them is that it sometimes occurs that one particular portion of the microcosm is so weak, in other words, not complete. This portion is weak, for example, in men. Maybe their femininity is weak that its imperfection or impurity would vitiate the macrocosm of which it is the image, eidolon, or reflection. For example, this is the example given on the whole object of every magical ritual. God is above sex, and therefore neither man nor woman as such can be said fully to understand, much less represent God. It is therefore incumbent on the male, male magician to cultivate those female virtues in which he is deficient and this task he must, of course, accomplish without in any way impairing his virility. So he shouldn't compromise parts of himself. He should be adding to it. And fem female magicians should be doing the same with the opposite direction. It will then be lawful for a magician to invoke Isis and identify himself with her. Invoke her and identify himself with her. If he fail to do this, his apprehension of the universe when he attains samadhi will lack the conception of maternity. The result will be a metaphysical and by corollary ethical limitation on the religion he founds. 
So when you think about the gender binary of Libra 15, the Gnostic mass, I'm not saying that people are doing it wrong. You can have men as priests and women as priestesses. But if you look at what he writes about completing yourself in order to be one with God, God is above sex, it makes sense that people should probably not be staying the same in fixed things. But if they're supposed to have motion, completing themselves by embracing where they're lacking and moving into that magical space. And if that is part of the vision for the new eon, why does doing that need to be kept behind closed doors in private masses? Why can't people whose will it is to move between those polarities be able to do that and not have to hide it? Um, so as I mentioned, you know, having, uh, this is also from the laws for all his commentary. He mentions the androgyne again. Equally, it is better for the androgyne, the yearning, which is a term at that time for a gay male or their feminine counterparts to endure blackmailers private and public, the terrors of police persecution, the disgust, contempt, and loathing of the vulgar and the self-torture of suspecting the peculiarity to be a symptom of a degenerate nature that to wrong the soul by damning it to hell of abstinence or by defiling it with the abhorred embraces of antipathetic arms. Every star must calculate its own orbit. All is will and yet all is necessity. To swerve is ultimately impossible. To seek to swerve is to suffer. The beast 666 ordains by his authority that every man and every woman and every intermediately sexed individual shall be absolutely free to interpret and communicate self by means of any sexual practices soever, whether direct or indirect, rational or symbolic, physiologically, legally, ethically, or religiously approved or no, provided only that all parties to any act are fully aware of all the implications and responsibilities thereof and heartily agree thereto. For me, I also like that he included symbolic because we make the case that the Gnostic Mass is symbolic of a sex act. So every individual across the spectrum, and he acknowledges that everybody's not a man or a woman, should have absolute freedom to do that. So I am over time. I'm going to go ahead and end there and stop sharing my screen and turn it back over to Chris. And I just wanted to thank everyone for giving me the time. I have an awkward update. Um, you know, I've been posting and writing about this a lot. And 30 minutes before my talk started, I got an email from U.S. Grand Lodge saying I've been put on the OTO's unwelcome list. Um, and I think that it's really interesting that all I've done is try and speak out and draw attention to these writings. And I have questioned the status quo. And uh, now something that was so meaningful to me for so many years, over a decade of my life, uh, I'm no longer welcome. So thank you. Are you still there, Richard? Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, you know what? Yeah. I, I, I turned off. Okay, I'm back on. I, I didn't realize uh, when I go to share screen, it turned off the camera. That's why I wasn't working earlier. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Wonderful presentation, my friend. And uh, lots Thank of, you. I think, the Thelemic world consider in that. And hopefully, uh, those words reach the ears of some of those people making I the decisions so. which you've uh, discussed. You know, uh, um, I yeah, guess we can take a couple of. <laughs> yeah, can we take a couple questions if they came through? Go ahead. Well, got um, I'll, I'll go. You can hear me. All of this relate okay. to perhaps the eleventh degree. 
I don't know. Um, I'm not an 11th degree. And yeah, I know that the 11th degree was the, you know, Crowley has put 9th degree next to his name, 10th degree, and then started, you know, 11th degree was the one he started signing things as. That's how he identified was an 11th degree. You know, the office of 11th degree has kind of been pushed out of the, the OTO. It's not really an office that people are frequently given, if at all, anymore. Um, and it's hard to read through you know what it could mean and i'll just i'll confess that no i don't i don't know um but if as i continue to study it's crossed my mind that's been on my mind because if you perhaps, look at the numerals perhaps the roman numerals 11th are a reflection of each other the ix and the xi so i've actually he always looks at the shape of characters as hieroglyphs and i thought well if the ninth degree is one way the 11th degree may be a variation and you can move between the two because they're a reflection. But anyway, I don't know the secrets of the 9th and 11th degrees, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, I just want to say um, that um, we're going to have an open chat. After, there's going to be an open chat after we're done with the last presentation. So people that want to get together, uh, talk about today's event and... Uh, Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk